please open your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, Pastor Stephen read from it just a little bit ago. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, and then half of chapter 12. We'll be finishing our series in Ecclesiastes uh, next month. Sometimes I think it's hard to know what to do. I'm sure many of you are faced with decisions right now that are difficult to know. What's the, what's the right choice? Um, th- there's lots of options. Uh, what, what should I do? It, it can be confusing. And um, sometimes we have to choose from a number of different bad choices. It's all, all that's there. Um, sometimes we have a, an option to look for multiple good choices. Uh, sometimes it's the choosing between two evils. The right decision isn't always clear. And, and it can be paralyzing. We can be just sort of frozen. What, what should I do? So should I take the job that I've always wanted but has this long commute? a long commute, or should I stay in my current job and it's closer to home? What should I do? Should, should I, <laughs> I buy the, the puppy that is so cute but gives me sleepless nights, Pastor Stephen? <laughs> that one's for you. No? <laughs> what, is, what is the right decision? What should I do? It, it can be paralyzing. Take, take for example, the, the, the traffic signal. I think we can tell there's sort of three different types of drivers when you're driving down the road and who, who you are when you approach a, a, a yellow light. Um, there's one person that just normally hits the, hits the brake and gives everybody whip, whiplash. You're, you're the cautious driver. And then there's a driver who, they see the yellow light and I'm going to make it. That is, they, hit the, they hit the accelerator. I think Rose just pointed at me. That's the aggressive driver. That's the aggressive driver. But then you have the indecisive driver that pushes both pedals at once. And I think that one's the worst of all. It's the most dangerous, the indecisive. It's a little scary. You you know who you are. The right decision isn't always clear. It it can be hard to choose. And so some people have the particular tendency, even more than others, to have a a paralysis by analysis. So you you, you see a, a, a decision you want to make and you weigh the different costs and benefits of it. And that's a good thing. But because the variables are too great, you find yourself paralyzed. What am I going to do? There's, a, there's an anxiousness about it. It's just not clear. What shall I do? So sometimes the default position ends up just doing, doing nothing. And that's paralysis by analysis. And today we're studying the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 11, as we saw. And the text pushes us towards not paralysis, but action. And it's not any sort of action, though. It's an action that's based in, in knowing God, knowing the creator. And the preacher urges us towards an active life, an active life anchored by faith in Christ. And so I'm going to give you the, the big idea this morning. The big idea will see it up on the screen. Because of what we don't know and what we do know, we ought to live fully unto our creator. Because of what we don't know and what we do know, we ought to live fully unto our creator. So the outline will break down pretty simple, which is the phrase there. The first part is, number one, what we don't know. Secondly, what we do know. And then what we ought to do. What we ought to do. We won't be following the text exactly in line with the, how it's written. We'll be sort of jumping in sections. I will point those out as we go. So let's begin. What, 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 don't, we, what, what don't we know that helps us to not be indecisive, to prevent us from being indecisive. Well, what, what, what don't we know? We don't know God's plans. We don't know God's plans. We don't know 
what God will do at any moment. It, it's, it's unclear to us. And because of that, it's, it's humbling. It's humbling to know that we don't know what God is going to do. And this humility is really a foundation for right living. Actually, knowing not what God will do is humility, which then gives, leads us toward right living, how to live rightly. So let me read chapter 11, the second half of verse 2 through verse 5. Chapter 11, second half of verse 2 through verse 5. I'll be in here. For you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south and to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. That's, a, that's amazing. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the spirit comes, in, comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Consider just some of the simple things in life that we, we don't know. I think maybe the first example is, is the weather. Um, we can't predict the weather. How, how many people over the ages have we paid and, you know, people around the world, and we still can't predict the weather very well? Maybe 75% of the time? It's probably less than that. It, who else would keep their, their job if they could only do 75% accuracy? Not very many people, right? We, we recently watched the Back to the Future movies, um, the series of them. And in the second movie, uh, they go into the future, and the, the writers back in... 1989, 1989, they wrote in that the, they would be able to predict the weather in 2015 to the second. Boom. The, the rain started and the rain stopped. That didn't happen, did it? No. We don't know what's going to happen. It's, it's unknowable. Or, or consider something a little even different. Consider mood. Consider your own mood. Do you know how you're going to wake up the next day? Sometimes our moods just change. It's hard to predict. You can't predict your own mood, let alone trying to predict your friend's mood. <laughs> and trying to pick a teenager's mood is even more difficult. All right. I think we'll solve the weather problem before we solve the mood problem. Because oftentimes for me, the weather changes and my mood changes. We, don't, we can't know what's happening. The preacher's argument is, is in verse 2. He starts with a disaster. He says, we can't know when a disaster comes. Um, for those of you who are old enough... It's kind of strange to even say this, but remember when the planes struck the, the towers in New York? It, we, could, we saw it on the news. We, we were vi- viewing it, but we could not believe it was occurring. It's, it, was, it, was that, it just happened. We, did, we could not have known. Or, or think of Mount St. Helens that erupted in May of, of 1980. There were signs that there were, you know, there were experiments and things going on. Something was happening. But no one could have predicted just how explosive and how that mountain doesn't even look like it used to look that quickly. Or consider just all of us remember last year when we were free to move about and then we were in our houses uh, in quarantine not too long soon. Who, who could have guessed these things? This is the fact that we don't know. We, don't, we, can't, we can't know things that are happening. We can anticipate at times. Like in verse 3, it says, we can anticipate when the clouds come, there'll be rain. We, we can certainly you know, relate to this in the Pacific Northwest, but sometimes we get it wrong. We, we think it's going to come, and then it, then it doesn't. Or in the next verse, there's some things that are, uh, not the next verse, it's the same verse, the second half of it. Uh, some things are unexpected. So, you know, you, you don't wake up, you don't normally wake up and see a tree fall in your backyard. There was no wind, and, and, but all of a sudden there's a tree falling. Where, where it fell, it, it fell, and there it is. We, we can, there's some things that are unexpected. 
We, we just can't know. Nature just totally points this out to us. And as such, we can reason that the best option sometimes when we're trying to figure out what to do is just to, to wait and see. Maybe we'll gain enough evidence, n- enough reason for knowing what to do. And that's kind of what happens here in verse 4. The person that decides not to do anything with sowing and reaping. When you don't sow or reap, what happens? It just leads to poverty and hunger. Doing nothing doesn't solve the, the problem. The preacher, he sort of gives this final major evidence of this. It's the most majestic of it in, in the next verse, um, verse 5. And I, I, I will ask people often, so when was it in your life where you really saw, you were just like in awe of God, like, wow, wow, God, what, wow. And I think the most common answer I've heard is people say the birth of a child. They, they, you know, this, this little one that comes out and cute little nose and, Ten little fingers and toes, and it's just like, wow, wow, God, how, how did you do that? And it, not only not only a physical body, but one with soul and spirit, and, you know, personality and emotion. And that, that's what the preacher says here. We don't know, like, how did God do that? How did He make this little this little being born into the world like this? And it, it says in verse five, it says to conclude, it says, we do not know the work of God. Who makes everything? We don't. We don't know. We don't know. And our inability to know what happens in life, our our limitations to know cause and effect, are only ultimately because of who we are. We are the created. We're the creation, and God, who made everything, is the creator. He's beyond our ways. He, he his 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 knowledge is unsearchable. His plans. We don't know. Its purposes are inscrutable. This is who God is compared to us. And that, that fact, it, it's humbling, or at least it ought to be humbling for us to, to know that only God knows cause and effect, and, and, and we can't. We're, we, we should be less sure of ourselves and humbled and, and look, to look outside of ourselves for help. It ought to direct us, or direct our eyes towards prayer and looking to God. So what we don't know, it's important. It's important to how we ought to live. We ought to live in humility because we don't know the work of God. But on the other side of that, what do we know? What do we know? Well, the preacher tells us that we know, this is what we know. He tells us that we know that our days are few. And he tells us that we know our days are few, and, but the good days are even fewer. The good days are even fewer. Look at um, chapter 11, verses 7 and 8. I'll read those. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember, let him remember that the days of darkness will be many, and that all that comes is vanity. So before we consider just what we don't know, just refresh our minds about the book of Ecclesiastes. The, the preacher probably Solomon, he, he writes this from the perspective of the earth. He, he's looking at what's happening around him, and he's giving his perspective on the earth from the perspective of the earth. And he, he's not making theological statements about what happens after life after death. He's, not look, he's just looking within this world. And he examines it, and his, his conclusion we see over and over and over again, it's vain, it's empty, it's passing. And so we've seen that his purpose is really to depress us 
that we might search for more. We'll see the limitations of this world that we might search for more. Uh, therefore, in verse 7 and 8, what we, what, we know, what we know should be concerning to us. It should be sobering that our days are few. Life, it says, is, is sweet like honey, but the life, our life isn't very long. The time that we have our, our body um, here is actually much less than the time that the body is in the grave for a very long time. And it says grave is, is, grave is the dark place. It's not the place of light. The sweetness is not found there. How many years do you think that you might live? 70? Hope, hope live 70, maybe 80, maybe, maybe, maybe 90. Um, if I, uh, my family history, most of the, the men in my family live to a little around, right around 80. So if I make it that far, I'm already half done. Um, and I, I, I got half done. And if you look at recorded history, which is about 5,500 years, I'm about a percent of that, it, unless the Lord tarries ter- ter- even long, longer. Our lives are short. And if you have some grandparents, they'll often tell you, and I think rightly, and what needs to be rightly, is that we need to, they tell us life is short, and we, we, we need to be reminded of this. And so that's what the preacher's doing here. In verse 80, he says, remember, remember. Remember that our days are few. The, the days of our life are limited. The Bible says that our days are like a breath. They're here for a moment, and they're passing. They, they go quickly. Um, I, I don't know if you remember when, when Pastor Ron was here and he had his, uh, his, his jar of marbles that he talked about and his marbles rep- represented the number of years that he had and he began to take them out and his, um, they get shorter, those fewer number of marbles in there. It tells you our days are few, our years are numbered. You know, Ken, Ken's been counting his marbles recently. <laughs> Life is passing, it's perishing. We don't know how many days we have. And this should, this should sober us. This should awaken our minds. It should clear our heads to the brevity of this life. Like a drunk man that's slapped in the face, <laughs> the preacher wants us to feel the sting of this so it might awaken us to just wasting our days in silliness. But that's not all we know. We know that our days are few, but the preacher goes on in saying that the, the, the few days we have the good ones are even fewer. <laughs> so even though we have this many days, the good ones are even fewer. Let's look at chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Before, you're going to see three befores in this section. They give different notes, and you're going to see a lot of metaphor. Before the evil days come, and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Verse 2, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened, the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few. As we're reading this, try to figure out what the metaphors are. And those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors in the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Verse 6, before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. 
Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. So again, let's remind ourselves about this book. The preacher is speaking to all of us, this, this whole group. He's speaking to the people at that time. But he has a special place in his heart for, for youth, for young people. The preacher, he, he knows that as you age, you can relate in certain ways that a person as young would not have known certain things. So if you're in your teens or you're, you're approaching your teens or you're in your 20s, the, the preacher cares about you and really wants to speak to you in particular here. He wants you to see that uh, life um, isn't always like it seems right now. There's an, there's an end to it, and the body does break down. If you're, you're older, then you've experienced the, the aching back or the injury that you had when you are younger, and it, it, it continually plagues you throughout your life. It's a reminder that you're, you're getting old. It's a reminder that the end is coming. And he does this in order to instruct all of us, but the youth in particular, don't waste your life. Don't, don't take those years that you have right now, they're the best ones, and waste them in things that aren't helpful. So the preacher exposes the decay of old age here. He wants us to, to, to see that the prime of life, if you're young, to use it well. And the preacher uses the word before three times, as I pointed out, and then these eight verses. And they indicate the things that, um, to, before these things happen, before these three things happen, this is when you should use your life in, in a good way. So the first one is in verse one, the first before, and it speaks of how it, before the evil days come, where pleasure is no more. When you're young, your, your senses are more acute, um, but as you get older, the, the senses dull and the pleasures fade. The second before is in verse 2, and it continues all the way till verse 5. And there's, I think the preacher is using humor here. It's somewhat humorously these metaphors. So I'll just list a few. He says the, the, the legs are like bent strong man as you get older. All right? And the, the, the eyes become dimmed like, like windows or, or shut doors. And it says that your teeth, they don't really work anymore. Why? Your grinders don't work because they're missing. You're missing some of your grinders. <laughs> and and a, and a person's walk, it, it turns into dragging along, dragging along like a, a grasshopper. These are the, the metaphors for what happens with age. You can see the humor, the preacher's humor. It, it, it's, it's, not, it's, a, it's satirical humor. It's, it's, it's kind of dark in a lot of ways. And then the third before is in verse 6, and he uses a number of idioms for death. And they're chained together. He says the, the, the cord is snapped. He says the bowl is broken. He says the pitcher is shattered. Uh, we might say he kicked the bucket or bit the dust or bought the farm. These are the kind of things he's saying. We know with age, the senses are gradually dulled and the ability to enjoy life, it, it diminishes. The pleasures that you have in your youth, your taste, your smell, your touch, you can have a full delight in them. But as you get older, a good meal, it just doesn't, Taste is wonderful. A walk, it can, kind of, it can sometimes be painful. The sex drive is abated. The body is returning to dust. We could say the lights are turning off. This is what we know. It is, it's sobering, and I think it's humbling. But before you get too depressed, <laughs> I get too depressed, he does this, he depresses in order to cause us to look for more. He reminds us that 
you know, this is what we know about life. This is what we don't know about life. So this is how we ought to live. And how might we ought to live? Well, it's kind of the end of this. We ought to live fully under our creator. So look back now at chapter 11, verses 1 through 2, and verse 6. Chapter 11, verses 1 through and 6. I'll read those. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. So you cast it out, it'll come back to you. Give a portion to seven, or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. Okay? Give out to lots of people. In the morning, verse 6, sow your seed. And at evening, withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. So in light of what we don't know, that's the work of God, his ways, and what we do know, that our days are few, we ought to live full lives unto our creator. I mean, we ought to live lives that that take risks and enter into challenges, lives that are generous and, and hard working, lives that Open your hands to all sorts of people and try different things. Try try different jobs and different pursuits and hobbies. Uh, Who spread their resources of time and energy and and, and money. Just spread it all over the place. This is the fact. The the fact that we don't know the work of God, it's important. Because, Because it does mean that we do know there is a God who is the maker of everything. And the one who trusts in God is the maker of all, it can try all sorts of activities and ideas without fear because they can ultimately say God is the one who's in control. He, he's the one who makes one thing to prosper and another thing to fail. So this is the beauty of being rightly related to God, that you can go out and do all kinds of things and entrust God with what's going to take place. If you want to be safe in this life, and doing nothing is not where you find safety. Being paralyzed by fear, it doesn't reduce anxiety. It actually creates more anxiety. Doing nothing is to waste the gift of life that you've been given. And doing nothing, what does it result in? It results in nothing but wasted time and poverty. But that doesn't mean that just doing everything is... Good as well, you go in with gusto because if you do everything without God, you do it without, with, uh, not in faith, this is perilous as well. It's full of great risk to work all sorts of works if not done in faith because ultimately then you're responsible for whatever outcome is to occur and we can't handle that. We can't do it ourselves. It's too much for us. That's a, a, that's a cause of a great recipe for even greater anxiety. Living fully in this world of constant change without God is dangerous. So, th- so think about it with my, my argument here. So with or without God, doing nothing is dangerous. But doing things without God is also dangerous. It's only by doing things in God, in faith, that much can be done under the divine protection of the one who is the maker of all, who controls all things. So when it says cast your bread, it means spread the, the, the wealth of what you have to others and let God return what it may be. Give to many, invest in many arenas. This, this is the truth. Everything that you do, all your endeavors will not succeed, but if you've never tried, you're always going to fail. Trust it to God. Let him do it. 
Ecclesiastes was written long ago. But we know some more since this book was written. We don't know all the works of God. We don't, because his ways are beyond us, they're inscrutable. But we do know the primary work of God. Someone, they came to Jesus and they asked him, how might we do the works of God? You remember that? What was his response? He said, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. This is John chapter 6. Believe in him whom he has sent. That's Jesus. Jesus came into the world to bring life and life to its fullest. And he brought life, how? By dying on behalf of those people who are cursed by sin and death. And in his dying and rising again, he offers life to people. And the work of God is to believe in him, to trust in his good work, the, the gospel that he brings, the good news of salvation through him, and to believe in this work, and then to follow him. And so when the, the work of God is to believe on him, and it's the work of faith. But that work doesn't just start there and the end. The, 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 the life with Jesus is an ongoing discipleship. It's an ongoing life of faith. It is to pray and then follow. It's a, it's a life of, of adventure and risk and uncertainty, not knowing what might come, but trusting in the one whom you're following. And it's a life that is signed, this is the, the beautiful part, it's a life that, life that is signed and secured by the Spirit of God. You don't know that things might succeed that you're trying, but you know you're assured in Christ. We do not know all the works that God will do, but we do know the work of God, and that is Jesus Christ. And so we ought to live our lives for him. As you read your Bibles, and I know we are, I hope we read our Bibles even more, we find that the disciples of Jesus were, were active people. They weren't careless about decisions, but they, they prayed and then they got to work. They sought to seek to glorify God with the lives, the years that they were given, the time they were given. They took risks that imperiled their financial security. They took risks that um, imperiled their social standing in their culture. And they took risks that even risked their own lives. Their lives, their lives, what? They had meaning and they changed the world by the Spirit of God. I think, I think this, this truth... It's practical how, to, how we make decisions today, you and I. It, it, it's the key to defeating the paralysis of analysis. If you're following Jesus and you're faced with a decision, just simply ask, look, will, this, will this glorify God? Can I glorify God in this? And do I desire to do it? And if the answer is yes, in a relationship or an investment or whatever, then, then step out in faith. Be led by God's spirit. If God doesn't want you to do that, then he's going to direct your path otherwise. Otherwise, it's, you've taken a venture. You've taken a step of faith. You've sought to glorify God. You've asked him and you've prayed. This is one of the many joys, I think, of walking with the Lord and following Jesus. Because you can be assured of your place in him while being on a, an adventure of faith. Because of what we don't know, and what we do know, this is the way life ought to be lived fully for our creator, unto our creator. Now, before we close, we're getting there. Let's focus on one 
main obstruction to living the way we ought to live. One of the main obstruction to living the way we ought to live. Let's look at chapter 11, verses 9 through chapter 12, verse 1. I'll read that. Chapter 11, verse 9, beginning. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. For youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Repeat that again. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. We live in a culture that seeks to leave God out. I think you agree with this. Out of government, out of business, out of education, out of family. And it's not that we, the culture ignores that there are people who believe in God, but it's that our culture treats God as an, an add-on, um, like an extracurricular activity. And the idea that, you know, there's certain people in certain times and certain places, maybe a church building on Sunday where God is important, but not in public life. And I know this is a generalization because I think some of you have Christian employers that seek to glorify God. I know some of you go to schools that seek to have God as the center. But I think on a whole, I think you agree that our culture uh, is trying not to have God as the center of life. And actually, I think our, God, our, our culture seeks to whitewash God from the presence of many areas of life. It's becoming more godless, more, more secular. And this problem is a problem because it, it influences who, what we think and how we do things and make decisions. To a greater or lesser degree in all of our lives, our society, it influences us. And this, this influence is particularly difficult, again, I think Solomon, the preacher, is saying here, to those who are young men and women, to youth, young men and women. You, the culture that you're in right now, it's all that you ever, ever know. You're closer to a, a society in which less and less of God being the center of it or in it. So as a young person, as, as a church family, we need to remember a creator. We need to establish him as central in our hearts. Because the world, I really do, it's persuasive. Why, why do, we, why do we, we say to read our Bibles? We need to read our Bibles to remind us of God, the creator, his center to life. Why do, we, why do we come to church week after week? We want to remember this, that God is the center of life. He's central to who we are and what we do. Why do we talk about the Lord in our homes? We have to remember again and again, the creator is central to our lives and what we do. The culture would want to remove him from our workplace and our home, our school. We want to bring God into our, our work and our school and our play. This is what, this is, in order for us to live how we ought to live, we need to remember our creator. It's also a protection for us. Notice how here it says that those will be led into to judgment. They'll be, everybody will be judged for what they do. Knowing the creator enables you to be, um, it's a safeguard against the judgment to come. There are lots of things you could do in life, but knowing there's a creator for you who wants to, there will be a judge someday, it limits some of the things that you might decide to do. Because we, even those who are Christians, are swayed by sin. We're, we're forgiven of our sins, but sin still deceives us. It wants to take us in a path that is going to hurt us. 
And so when we're faced with a decision, there's a battle between following Christ and following our sin or following our flesh or just following our desires that aren't in line with Christ. The protection for the sinner is to keep the creator central in your life. We need the creator to be central. We need him to be the apex of our, our faith, of our life. And that is, enables us to flee judgment. This is fundamental to living the life of a Christian. Young person, I'll talk to you specifically because that's what Psalm is doing. Remember your creator. Someday pleasure will um, be no more and your body will fail and death will come. So you want to redeem the days that you have right now by remembering your creator and living for him. Right now you have greater capacity. You have better ability to, uh, you have more opportunities in a lot of ways being young. You, you have um, a, a brighter future so use your days for your creator. Uh, older folks, they, they tell you to remember those things. It's because they, they've wasted themselves at times. They don't want you to waste your life. Live it for your creator. Let me conclude this way. What decisions are you facing right now? How will you proceed? Well, I hope this message gives you some ideas based on what we do know and what we don't know. I'll give you an example. Heather and I were once faced with the, the, um, the question or the decision whether or not we would adopt a, a child, a child that was in a, a difficult place. And this was before we had our own biological children. And so we, were, we prayed, we thought about it, we considered and we wrestled with it. And, and we came to the conclusion, I kind of remember actually being in our backyard, I don't know, for whatever reason, it was, it was grassy, it was mowing the lawn and that was out, and, we, and I just remember, we came to the conclusion by faith, yes, we'll, we'll step out and, 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 and put ourselves forward. And as soon as we did that, though, we said, your will be done, the decision was reversed, and the situation didn't, didn't happen. The situation changed. The child had a home. And th- this is the, it's, it's the walk with Jesus. It's following him. It's stepping out. It's doing things that you, you just don't know what's going to happen. And, it, it, and I think in that case, God was testing us. Not, not testing us in the sense of that, you know, he didn't know what we were going to do. But he was saying, are you willing? Are you willing to step out and doing something that's, that's, that's risky? And in doing so, we were blessed and we learned something about faith in the walk with Christ. This is just a small example, a small example. It, this is a life of faith. A life that is led by the Spirit, living for Jesus. And it's a full life. It's a whole life. There's, there's, no, there's no better life. And when we realize what well, we, do, we don't know, all of God's works, and we realize that our lives are short, then we can live lives that are full unto our Creator. So I encourage you all, take steps of faith. Take risks. But know and be secure in Christ because nothing can snatch you out of his hand. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would give us faith. We know it's a gift from you. God, may we keep you as the creator central in all that we do. May um, knowing you as as the creator, the one who's over all things, protect us. Uh, Protect us from um, treating this life as, as just simple or being anxious about this life. And also protect us from judgment and sin we would do things that we ought not to do. And Lord, we, we pray that we would use the days that you give us, the few days you give us, well. 
May, may we glorify you. Lord, forgive us for the, just the, the countless times where we've just used the life that you've given us for purposes that um, aren't helpful and aren't good. Lord, change us, grow us, help us to increasingly become better followers of Jesus and enjoying him, being secure in him. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.